Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Robert P. Jones. Robert is the president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and a leading scholar and commenter on religion and politics. He writes regularly on politics, culture, and religion for the Atlantic, Time, and Religion News Service. He's frequently featured in major national media such as MSNBC, CNN, NPR, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and others. He holds a PhD in religion from Emory University and a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, which won a 2021 American Book Award, and The End of White Christian America, which won the 2019 Grawmeyer Award in Religion. He writes a regular Substack newsletter at robertpjones.substack.com, and he is the author of his newest book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert to the Deep Dive. Among all the list of that media that you've been on, the Deep Dive will now be added to that list. So welcome to the show. That's so great. No, thanks for having me. You know, so as I documented in um, in your bio, you know, you are uh, a scholar of of religion. You're uh, a thinker around around politics, and you know, judging by the titles of these books, you know, you're dealing in all the light subjects, right? The <laughs> hidden right. the the hidden roots of, of white supremacy, the legacy of white supremacy, the end of white Christian America. So clearly, in your work and in your focus, the tackling of of white supremacy the linking of that to the way it plays out in white Christian nationalism has been a theme. So I want to give you an opportunity before we start talking about the book to share why this particular topics and groupings has been, I think it's fair to say, um, your life's work, or at least your most recent life's work. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I think that's an accurate way of putting it, it, it's certainly uh, a personal journey uh, that I've been on. Um, so I grew up, uh, uh, for the most part, in Jackson, Mississippi. I grew up thinking of myself as someone who was white uh, and Christian. Um, and in that kind of Southern evangelical world um, of the Deep South. Uh, and so, you know, growing up, uh, issues of racial justice or racial inequality were all around me and yet almost never discussed. And so part of, I think, the work I've been doing um, has really just been unearthing this history that in, in white circles, uh, for sure, has been uh, suppressed, uh, intentionally forgotten, a lot of willful amnesia uh, going on, but trying to kind of bring it up and, and surface it um, in a way uh, that we can be more honest uh, about our past and, you know, really with the conviction that, you know, it's only through that kind of engagement, honest engagement, um, that we can build a foundation for, you know, anything resembling um, a, a shared future together. So uh, I'm a, a academic uh, sociologist by training. I also have a divinity degree from a Southern Baptist Seminary. So, you know, I, I bring those tools with me. Um, and so one of the ways I've done this are kind of gone on this journey is to use those tools um, and to write books and and really at the heart of them is just this uh, this third book uh, this is kind of three books as you said kind of wrestling with this entanglement of white supremacy Christianity and democracy um, and um, it really is just about trying to disentangle um, these histories and particularly pointing out places where we've really gone wrong places where we have yet to disentangle white supremacy from both Christianity and democracy and just try to be as honest and as clear-eyed as I can about it. It's it's interesting because there's there's always so many paradoxes that exist 
within the space. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I, I found the book particularly important to engage with because we are at a time in America where, you know, I've, I, I jokingly will, will tell friends that I feel like we're at the cusp of our third reconstruction, right? Like we're, you know, or, or rather I should say we're at the, we're at that part of the reconstruction folding, folding up, right? And, and, and when I, when I used to read about the reconstruction and, and, and study it both in school and personally, my prevailing thought was like, damn, it must've been crazy to live through that, right? Like, just when you thought you saw the light at the end of the tunnel, that that shit was over. And now I feel like we're in that moment now. Whatever, you know, I hate using words like racial reckoning because they, they're super corny. But to the extent that America was engaged in a racial reckoning, which I was skeptical of um, in the aftermath of George Floyd, it's, it's obvious that that reckoning is, is largely over. And what we're actually seeing is a retrenchment from that moment. You know, we're, we're peeling back from that moment. So your book exists in, I, I think it's safe to say, a very different political and social climate than likely when you started writing it. <laughs> so I'm curious how you think about that as you start to bring this book out into the world where so many of the terms, you know, the, the title in and of itself, it would be enough to cause the Tucker Carlson's of the world to have their heads explode, which would be an awesome result. So I hope that does happen. Um, so, so what do you think about that? Right. Or, or I guess get the book banned in Florida. Um, Ex- right? Exactly. Um, might might also the, happen. Um, to the extent that books are even still allowed in a place like Florida. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think it's a really astute observation, particularly the cyclical nature of our history where you're exactly right. You know, that it's just so clear in the historical record that you see these movements of progress followed by intense periods of backlash. Um, and I think we're in that you know, backlash moment. Um, the, the last book I wrote actually came out in 2020 um, when, you know, there was a much more, I think, optimistic feel to things, um, you know, Black Lives Matter was, and we was on the kind of tongues of everyone. And, um, but, you know, we certainly uh, saw a little bit of the, you know, early, like all lives matter pushback on, on, on that as well. But, but there've been just such a mounted systematic, efforts at, at pushing back on this, um, on those, on, on the progress, you know, but just to kind of go to a couple of, you know, things that, you know, in, in um, kind of rewind us, you know, we saw this in the civil rights movement, you know, when we have Brown v. Board of Education, uh, desegregate uh, the schools, at least officially and the national, you know, then we just see this huge backlash, um, the Emmett Till's killed, right, in the, in the um, next year um, after that in Mississippi. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm from Mississippi, and I was in third grade in the Jackson public school system when it finally got around to uh, obeying Brown v. Board of Education 22 years later, right? So I was in 1976 before uh, the, the, the elementary schools in, in southwest part of Jackson were, were actually integrated. Um, you know, so we, we see these, you know, short-term and long-term efforts at, at pushing back. Of course, you mentioned Reconstruction. Um, that was uh, summarily, you know, ended. Um, and when the federal government decided uh, that it would no longer, you know, send federal troops to protect that progress, uh, Southern states and whites in Southern states began clawing it back. And, you know, what did they call it? Uh, they called the end of Reconstruction redemption, right, was their term uh, for pulling back a white supremacist state, even, in the, even after the loss of the Civil War. So I do think we're in the cyclical moment I do think there's one thing that's different about today that I, I think is worth noting. And it's also something that is both, I think, gives me a little bit of hope, and, but it also fuels, I think, the violence and the visceral reactions that we're seeing. And, and that's this, that one thing that's different today that has never been true in the country is that the demographics in the country haven't, have changed so significantly, even in the last 20 years. And, and, and one particular one that I, as a scholar of religion, that I kind of want to draw attention to is that the claims of uh, white supremacy have always been wrapped up um, not just in racial claims, but in religious claims, 
Um, so the KKK, for example, was always an ethno-religious movement, right? It was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Christian movement uh, that that was not only um, virulently anti-Black, uh, but it was also anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish. Uh, and the main reasons were that that did not fit this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, Christian uh, view of the country. So we've always had this ethno-religious claim uh, of superiority in the country. Uh, and, and there's always been a kind of super majority of white Anglo-Saxon Christians um, in, in the country. People understood themselves um, that way. Um, as recently as, as um, 2008, when Barack Obama was first running for president, the country was still 54% white and Christian. So if you take all Christians uh, who identify, self-identify as white and not Hispanic, it was 54% of the country. Uh, by the time, at the end of Barack Obama's second term, that number had dropped uh, to about 45%, and that number today is 42%. So I do think that is part of, again, both, I think, explains why there's a sense of desperation, I think, in the in the current moment, because the numbers just aren't there uh, to hold on to power in the way that they have been in past generations. But it also means that I think people are reacting out of this sense of um, a real last stand kind of mentality and a kind of apocalyptic. Um, and, and, you know, when we have our, you know, President Trump, former President Trump, using language that fuels that, uh, you know, saying, if you don't elect me, you will not have a country anymore. And if you really unpack that, that's exactly what he's referring to, this sense of a white Christian country. And, you know, there's a, there's a ton of really great things in there that, that I want to go into a little bit more. One of them, well, I'll, I'll start here, is the demographics, right? And I don't doubt the numbers, Right. But as someone who is deeply embedded in culture, I'm curious about how those who might not identify as evangelicals in the classic way in which we think about that, but yet they will attach themselves to certain ideologies that are, that hold up the values of white supremacy through a v- evangelical lens, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you think about that because one of the arguments that have often been been used to, when talking about demographics is that every generation, their viewpoints change and younger people don't feel the way that the other people feel. And there's always that story. And yet when I look at some of the violence that has been impacted around black and brown people, it's young people doing it, right? The the recent shooting in Florida, that person I think was 20 or 21 years old, Kyle Rittenhouse, was a teenager when he rode off on his mission of vigilante justice that ended with people's deaths, right? The shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, when Ruth Young, right? So I'm connecting two things, but I'm curious how you factor that into your thoughts around around this, that, you know, youth is not an answer in my mind. So I want to kind of get your thoughts on that. And then that evangelical umbrella, which could now start to expand and extend around white supremacy that doesn't necessarily have to fit those evangelical numbers. Right. Well, let me start with the evangelical Part of that question. Sure. So one of the the um, the last book that I that I wrote was it's called White Too Long: The Legacy of um, White Supremacy in American Christianity. And one of the I think surprising findings of that book uh, was some research that uh, we did at, at Public Religion Research Institute, where I'm the president founder. And we were looking at well, we had noticed a pattern in the voting um, after 2016, and you know, and everybody I think there was a lot of ink spilled about white evangelicals, and, and just to kind of make sure I define that. These are people who um, who identify as white, non-Hispanic, and also um, Christian, and additionally say that they think of themselves as an evangelical or born-again uh, Christian. So that's how we define it in the survey. But that group got a lot of attention because it voted uh, about 80% uh, for Donald Trump in 2016, um, and then slightly higher than that, actually, in 2020. So a lot of ink spilled around that. But what I think didn't get enough attention is that the other two largest groups of white Christians that are not evangelical, 
that is some the group uh, of Protestants often called the white mainline Protestants are, you know, think of them as the non-evangelical uh, white Protestants. These are people who are not predominantly in the South. They're more Midwestern and Northeastern. They tend to be upscale uh, socioeconomically from uh, uh, evangelicals and, you know, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, that's, that's the group. Uh, so that group of, of white Protestants, white non-evangelical Protestants and white Catholics as well, each of those groups voted about six in 10 uh, for Trump uh, in, in both elections. And, and so I, I think that, that while uh, white evangelicals get that attention because they're from the South, they're the strongest supporters of Trump and that MAGA, Make America Great Again movement. Um, but I think uh, if we paid attention to the voting patterns, we see, oh, actually, it's, it's white Christians across the board that, uh, that supported Trump. And so we, we dug a little bit into that and looked at trying to look at attitudes around racism and particularly a systemic racism. You know, the idea that past acts of discrimination, whether it's slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, the redlining, those kinds of things, whether these things uh, still have an impact today. Uh, and one of the things that we found is that uh, overwhelmingly white Christians are denied that systemic racism still exists uh, uh, today. Uh, they don't think racism is a problem. They don't think past discrimination has any effect on the present. And they are very different than white uh, religiously unaffiliated uh, folks. And, and since the 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 finding that we, I think the most kind of eye-opening finding in that book was what the data says is that if you basically take your average white American and you add Christian identity, they essentially become more racist, not less, right? That's the impact that Christianity has had. And, and it's not just evangelicals, it's across the board. Um, so I, I want to kind of make sure I'm clear about that. And then the um, the thing on, on youth is is uh, right. And you're, you know, you're the examples you name are right. And then there's also... Um, you know, Charlottesville, where the, the men marching around the Robert E. Lee uh, monument with their tiki torches and shouting Jews will not replace us look like, you know, they were out of a Gap commercial with their khaki pants and their button up shirts. And they were all relatively young. Um, so I think that's that's certainly right. That the We see this um, kind of young white men being people pulling the trigger, advocating for violence or provoking violence. Um, statistically speaking, um, they are still... Um, they're the remnant, I think, in many ways that, that have been left, because what we've seen is actually a great exodus from white Christian circles uh, by younger people. Uh, so, for instance, you know, the, in the country today, about 27 percent of the country is religiously unaffiliated. That is, they claim no religious affiliation. But among young people today, it's 40 percent um, that claim no religious affiliation. So what we've seen is, I think, particularly um, over the last 20 years, these white Christian affiliated denominations and churches have been shrinking mostly because of an exodus of young people. But the ones who have stayed, I think, have have stayed because they are more radicalized and, and are really holding on to, um, you know, a more white supremacist belief system. So they've become, in essence, even more fervent in their desire to keep the country, quote unquote, keep the country or more likely make the country in their own in their own image. And I'm I'm curious from your perspective as a you know a religious scholar and I've interviewed other other folks. So shout out to Jay Augustine, another another guest of mine who is also an esteemed scholar and theologian around these issues. Like what is it embedded in Christianity? That seems to do the opposite effect for white people as it does for black people, <laughs> right? No, that's because, a great question. You know, yeah. because I, I joked with um, Bradley Onishi, who was on the show with me, and and he's another person who's had who's dives deep into these conversations. Yeah, and I was like, the interesting thing for me as an as an atheist, right? Like, I'm not a believer in anything, so I've, I'm in that religious non affiliated group, mm-hmm. but. I, I'm also people can feel whatever they want to feel, right? So I don't, I don't throw my atheism in people's face as some sort of testament to like I'm smarter than you. I'm like I don't care, right? Like people can believe whatever it is they want to believe. So I just mentioned this um, as a point to to signify that I was saying to him that like the average black person is far more religious than like the average white person in my mind. Like when I'm out with my black friends who aren't really that, like they don't go to church every day. They always like pray before they eat. And I'm like eating. And they're just like, oh, he's got to say grace real quick, man. 
<laughs> you know, and I'm like, you do that through like my mouth mm. stuffed with like an appetizer, right? I've never been out casually with a white person where they do that, <laughs> you know? So it's weird. Like there's like this super sect of like religious white people who feel like they own Christianity. And then there's like black people who are like super religious. <laughs> yeah. So like, how come the Christianity hits white people differently than it seems to hit hit black people? Well, it, it's stunning. And you can see exactly this dynamic you're talking about in the data on all kinds of issues, um, whether it's like voting patterns like you know, they're uh, and not just, you know, voting for Barack Obama, but but, um, you know, if you look at Biden uh, um, and, and Trump or go back even further, um, even pre Obama, typically speaking, when we look at the data, we arrange um, kind of religious groups uh, from the most Republican to the most Democratic. The two groups on the polls um, are actually white evangelical Protestants and African American Protestants, right? Who share a faith. Um, in many cases, uh, you know, have churches right down the streets from each other, and yet draw such dramatically different conclusions about that. I, and I can say that certainly has to do with the racialized way that religion has functioned, and, and particularly the way that white supremacy has functioned in white white churches. Um, you know, the the, um, the the last time black and white people went to church together at any uh, scale was uh, as when, when in the South and, 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 and actually in other places uh, earlier than that, uh, when white people brought enslaved people to church with them. But once uh, we get past emancipation, the white and black Christians go their separate ways. Um, and you essentially have, this is in many ways what the, the, um, uh, the new book is about the hidden breach of white supremacy is I try to go back and say, well, well, where did this go wrong? Like, where where did the idea that white Christians not only, as you said, own the religion, but own these lands, right, that weren't theirs? Where did that come from? Uh, and, you know, you, you could trace it back in, in Western history. And in the book, I trace it back to 1493. Now, that, that year may sound a little bit familiar. Um, it's not 1492, which is the year that we all learned uh, in elementary school that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in that little poem. Uh, but it's the next year. And so what happens in that year is he goes back, right? And he, by the way, with uh, enslaved uh, indigenous people on board, uh, goes back um, and asks for more missionaries, more troops, more supplies to go back and actually colonize the lands um, that he encountered. And 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 he needs a couple of things. He needs uh, supplies and um, ships and those kinds of things from the political powers that be. But he's also asking for um, a kind of moral mandate uh, for it and a religious mandate. And he turns to the to the Christian church, the Western Christian church. Uh, at that time, it's before the Protestant, Protestant Catholic split. It's before the Church of England breaks off from the Catholic church. So there's really one religious power in Western Europe, and that's the Catholic church. So he appeals to the Pope. Um, and there has already been a series of documents starting in 1452 that justify the colonial enterprise. Um, and he gets yet another, you know, edict. And when you read these, they're just, they're just bone chilling. Um, because essentially what the church is saying is, um, here's how you can determine who has rights that you're bound to respect. And it's really one criteria. Are they Christian? And if, if they're not Christian, um, they are to be considered enemies of Christ. That's the actual language. Um, in the document, and it goes on to spell out that you then have the right, you, because you're coming from a Christian nation, have the right to pillage, to kill, to occupy, uh, and they even has this language, um, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Um, so these are all in these documents out of the Vatican in a series of papal edicts between 1452 and 1493. Um, and this sets the compass, the moral compass for the way that Christianity understands itself coming from Europe into these lands. And so it's very, very old. Uh, and so the, the when, when African-American sort of Christianity breaks off, um, you know, it's it largely rejects uh, that view um, for obvious reasons. Uh, but it that carries on um, and it carries on today among white Christians. I think this is getting to the core of maybe what, you know, it's not a therapy session for me, but maybe this is why I've never felt comfortable with um, <laughs> all this Christianity stuff, right? It seems like the deck is is stacked against those who didn't originally write all of these edicts and motions and and in the first place right it seems 
hard for me to understand how one can, you know, subscribe to a faith that so clearly has worked against you at every at every step of the way. But even putting that aside, you know, you mentioned the doctrine of discovery. This is is in in your mind through the book one of the foundational documents that sets all this in motion. And again, it seems so in opposition to the philosophical underpinnings of Jesus Christ. (laughs) So it shocks me to read it historically, and it shocks me to see it played out in modern day times, Mm. right? So as the theologian, I'm leaning on you, my friend, to help help (laughs) this make sense to me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this contradiction wasn't lost even on European Christians, even at the time, right? And so there was a whole theological enterprise explaining, you know, the, what what seems on the face of it, um, you know, this this contradiction. And and you can probably its most extreme expression uh, was what happened to the Bible um, in the hands of many European Christians, particularly those who were committed to slavery. Uh, Fisk University has, um, uh, this Bible has kind of gotten dubbed the slave Bible, um, but it was a Bible printed in England for use in the colonies uh, with enslaved people. And you can see exactly, you know, again, this kind of squirming. Uh, and, and what they basically did is they they just went through and excised all the parts of the Bible that might lead any enslaved person to think they ought to be free. Um, so, you know, what you've got in, in the uh, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is you've got Genesis there. Uh, you've got Leviticus with all the laws that some of them which reference slaves. But the book that you're missing, uh, actually, it includes the book, but it, it doesn't include. The, uh, it, has the, it has the story of the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt, but it cuts out the story of their freedom, of their liberation uh, in the New Testament. It includes um, like the book of Ephesians, where uh, the, the Apostle Paul writes infamously, uh, slaves obey your masters. It includes the book of Philemon, where Paul, again, is admonishing uh, an escaped enslaved person to go back to their master. But it excludes uh, some verses in uh, the book of Galatians, for example, that says, in Christ, there is no free nor slave, uh, no Jew nor Greek. Cuts those things out, right? So it doesn't have to deal with them. So you can see that they weren't unaware of this. Uh, of these contradictions, but they just worked around them, right? Out of out of self interest, um, and it's one of the reasons why, also, that uh, in many uh, cases, that African Americans, even when they were, uh, even when they had adopted Christianity, were often strictly supervised uh, by white overseers or um, owners in uh, kind of antebellum times, because they knew that there were certain parts of Christianity that had this. this you know, this message of equality um, in it, and that if it weren't kept under wraps and uh, through a white interpretive lens, uh, that it might, uh, you know, lead them to have the ideas that this, uh, what was being preached to them is God's will uh, to be enslaved and their place as a slave and other people as their masters uh, wasn't actually in the Bible. So this white interpretive lens that, that you describe, it sounds to me, again, that this is par for the course in how America operates, right? You're you're talking about this lens sharing religious ideals and choosing to edit what best fits the story of those who are the ruling class at the time, white men. And you fast forward to 2023 and you have school boards in Florida most most loudly but all around the country in both local and state municipalities that are looking to tell a different story of America. They're looking to tell a white interpretive lens. So it it sounds to me that this is just how, in order for this to work with the power being centered in whiteness, you have to edit the story. And your book and others are seeking to expand the story. So how do you fight through that reality, I guess is the question. In the beginnings, I think always, you know, the uh, always determine kind of what we pronounce as good at the end of the story or natural. You know, the status quo is often defended. Uh, we come up with our, uh, we often come up with our beginnings kind of reading 
<laughs> reading our origin stories backwards. And I think in many ways, you know, we saw this fight just in the last few years um, when the 1619 Project came out, right, and challenged 1776 as, you know, this uh, as as the origin story of the, of the country. And immediately we had uh, Donald Trump uh, launch a 1776 Project, um, right, with um, people who, interestingly enough, had no historical credentials, um, but nonetheless was just absolutely incensed that, you know, we were not going to have the beginning of the American story with a bunch of white men gathered around a table in Philadelphia with their pen, with their quill pens um, out, right? And um, yeah, and I, so I think that was a huge shift, um, and the the traction that the sixteen nineteen project got, I think, was absolutely instrumental um, in kind of breaking us out of that way of, of seeing it. And you know, one of the things I think I'm trying to do in this book is to say a kind of yes and. Uh, to the 1619 project that yes we have to go back there and we have to keep going uh, really because you know if we if we only begin in 1619 we we don't really see in that frame uh, indigenous people very well uh, in that frame there's there's over a century of interaction with indigenous people the, the European uh, indigenous uh, interactions uh, again you know they began in the in the 15th uh, century so we've got to kind of widen the aperture. And it's really only then we understand kind of how we got to where we are. And one of the things I, I talk about in the book is that, you know, this is, you don't have to be a historian to do this. You know, if I kind of go back to um, Mississippi and to Minnesota and Oklahoma and try to put it on the ground, but it doesn't matter where you are, um, uh, New York, uh, you know, our biggest cities. Um, but if you just look at the place names around you, the na- particularly the names of rivers, mountains, uh, natural features, of the landscape, Right, they are inevitably uh, Native American uh, names, right? Um, and and you can sort of just see we still have this lingering history that we try to pretend you know wasn't there. So I, I think that you said you know the function of, of kind of origin myths. I think you know if you take the Book of Genesis for example, you know you get this in the beginning was God, and essentially this certain this this idea that there was nothing but God, right? And then you get kind of the creation story out of nothing, and and then uh, you end with the Kind of creation of human beings uh, in, in the natural world. And then, you know, and God said this was good, is the way that story goes. And it's basically the structure of all myths that they, they tend to kind of explain where we are and how we got there. So getting the beginnings right is really important if we're really going to understand in a more honest way, not only kind of where we are, who are the haves, who are the have nots, uh, but why are these people the haves and why are these people the have nots? Uh, and, you know, it, it is certainly more than a story of merit, right? Um, it's a story of theft, um, land theft, labor theft, um, and all kinds of schemes, you know, all blessed, again, in the name of Christianity and Western civilization. I think what's, what's interesting of, about 1619 Project and, and other works that seek to tell a richer story of the United States, it's, it's almost like one needs to not necessarily make a choice but the united states was was not a the origin story of july 4th 1776 is a moment in time because of the signing of the declaration of independence right like you could have you could have picked any number of dates along that timeline whether it's the boston tea party or lexington and concord you know or you know when they levied taxes um the Boston Massacre. I mean, there's in in that colonial movement, there's ample opportunity to pick a date. Totally get why July 4th is that date. I, as a spectator, I think what's interesting is, and I'm going to talk for the people who did the 1619 Project, which is not my intention, but I don't think anyone's suggesting that we change the date, right? Like, I think what they're suggesting is that we better frame the origin and the effects of that date by including 1619 when, you know, the 20 or 26 um, Africans landed in, in Jamestown. In the same way as I read your book, I'm not, I don't think you can tell me differently that you're saying, oh, the doctrine of discovery is when we should, we should celebrate that. Not celebrate because it's a terrible document, but you know, that should be the date, right? I think what you're saying is that there's a, richer, more inclusive conversation to be had 
by understanding the effects of these types of documents and the foundation philosophically, socially, and economically of what became the United States. Is that a fair summation? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, and, and use the word frame. And I, I want to kind of pick up on that as a metaphor, because I, I think what happens is um, it, it's, a, it's a question of what needs to be accounted for, right, in the story. So if you, again, if you just kind of think about, I know we're, we're on a non-visual medium here, but if you think visually about it, um, like I used to collect postage stamps. And so if you have like, you know, that postage stamp, again, of kind of those white men, their colonial finery, you know, their white knee socks and their quill pens on all arranged around the table, the right? Shoes, um, the, the yeah. Wigs. So, so <laughs> just think about what's in that frame. So then the country becomes about landed gentry and philosophical ideas. That's what has to be accounted for in the story of America, right? No matter that if you read that document, right, it refers, for example, it refers to indigenous people and calls them merciless savages in that document. Um, it actually refers uh, indirectly to enslaved people um, because one of their complaints in that document um, is that the king has encouraged slave rebellions in the colonies, and they're complaining about that. So it, it sort of does, but in the imagery, it doesn't, right? And so you get the sense that, oh, well, America is really just about a set of ideas put down on paper by a, a group of uh, white, highly educated men, a kind of landed gentry class. That's the story. And so that's that's what we account for. If you take it to 1619, right, you've got uh, these indigenous servants who become enslaved um, in, uh, in in a colony. And you, you've got already story of captivity, kidnapping, forced servitude. That's the story you have to account for. Right. And then you take it up further, 1493, you know, what you've got is actually you see America in the context of a worldwide colonial effort that is uh, encouraged and morally justified uh, by a global Western Christian church. Um, and, and you've got to account for that, right, in the story. So I, I, it's really important. Um, what's, in, what's just, whatever's in that initial frame, visually and substantively, then has to be dealt with in the story. And I, I think that's the reason why that 1776 motif is so narrow and exclusive. Um, be, because um, it, it is perhaps the narrowest possible lens that we could think about our origins with. You mentioned um, this author who I, I highly recommend folks also read, um, Charles C. Mann, who, who wrote 1493, and he also wrote another book, 1494. And I'll also throw in, um, I believe I'm going to get this right. I apologize if I don't 100% get it right, but Roxanne Ortiz Dunbar, who wrote mm -hmm. The Indigenous um, history of the United States. And I've, I've read all of their work. And I, I often recommend these books to folks because I'm like, look, I've, I've been on the side of this stuff, I think more than the average person. And I was still stunned to get a better understanding of how rich, nuanced, and complex indigenous societies were. And are like I'm not trying to make it seem like they're right. these mythical yeah. people that don't exist anymore. But by the time um, Europeans came here, these were thriving empires that were so vastly different from one another, depending on what part of the Americas you were in. Right? Like it wasn't just the Aztecs. Right? It wasn't just like mm -hmm. the Mohawks in the more northeastern part and other many, many, many other um, groups and societies that as not a scholar of this, I can't even name. Right? And and you, when you talk about the rivers and the land being, having and holding their names, but now with fewer and fewer of those people. Like I think if, if mm -hmm. folks really understood, because I think a part of the erasure of this story, in my mind, is the erasure of that richness. That you, they want to make you think that Europeans landed and it was just vast nothingness with a few people sprinkled on it, right? And it wasn't that, right? It was far more than that. And it was complex. Like they were not nomads, like, you know, going from place to place. Like these were settled people. And you really pull that in when you start to talk about 
again, this doctrine of discovering these other documents. So um, I'm curious how we dive into that richer story when I feel like it would take volumes. Like, I feel like every time I turn around, I'm still finding another book or resource, particularly from Indigenous voices. I want to emphasize that, right? Like, you know, so I'll, I'll stop there, but I'm curious about how you think about that. Well, yeah, I want to just second you on Roxanne Dunbar, Ortiz's work. That book is really eye-opening for me as well. Um, one other I'll, I'll throw out is um, a recent one um, this year, Ned Blackhawk's um, The Rediscovery of America. Um, the subtitle is Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History. And he's, he's basically just making exactly these points um, you're making. And, you know, and he points out, uh, as man uh, does too, that, you know, when Europeans arrived here, there were cities that were bigger than London here. There were cities that were bigger than Seville here, right? Um, so these Europeans arriving, this mythology, right, that it was a, and, and you know, the, again, the metaphors are telling, right, that, that people talk about this as a, like a Garden of Eden, right, as if there were only literally two people here, right, um, Adam and Eve, and the rest was just open for the taking. You know, and I think it, it's just striking the, the legal term that ended up getting used and got incorporated into U.S. law um, as kind of when the doctrine of discovery gets incorporated into U.S. law was terra nullis, right? Literally empty land uh, was was the way that it was talked about, right? Um, and so I, I think that's exactly right. And getting, um, you know, wrapping our heads around the fact uh, that it's there and that, that if you look at the earliest, again, we're talking like 15th century earliest encounters, you know, what you see there is that these earliest encounters encounter a much denser Native American population than the later uh, people do. And one of the main reasons for that is that these early encounters introduce, introduce European diseases uh, into uh, the North American contact that Native peoples had no immunity uh, to. So not only them, but their cattle, particularly imported uh, pigs um, into, into North America, decimated uh, these folks, some, you know, we, we kind of just went through this pandemic and we lost, you know, over a million uh, people um, out of, um, you know, 320 million uh, Americans today. But many of these diseases wiped out 20, 30 percent, you know, of so we'd be talking about, you know, a disease that that wiped out 10 times the number that COVID uh, did that we just went through. And that's the kind of devastation uh, that, that went along with the colonial um, kind of wars and, and, and violent clashes with Europeans. But, but disease, I think, was um, a huge part of it. And, you know, and you have these kind of people like Winthrop, John Winthrop, Puritan, right, uh, kind of giant in the ways that I learned American history. And he called these diseases like the hand of God, right? He thought about it as providence clearing the land for Europeans coming in, that it, it went hand in glove with their own violent conquest. It's absolutely stunning. It, it remains stunning. Like, it doesn't matter how many times yeah. I, I wrestle with it or read it, it remains shocking that this is not just the way we learn this history. Because we we end up fighting over, you know, they, there's that term that they use in Supreme Court, like settled law, right? Mm. And so much of what we're discussing, in my mind, is settled history, right? Like these are not things that are debatable. So much of this is documented. Like, you know, people are like, oh, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Then you're like, motherfucker, I'm reading what they wrote. <laughs> like, I'm reading what Confederates wrote at the time. Like, like, sir, we are leaving this nation because we want slaves, right? Like, you know, they're literally saying these words that people are saying. That's not the reason. And so it's it's how do we get, as you talk about the future, right? And then I want to ask a few more questions about the book. The future is here. We are in this moment of clawback, pushback, retrenchment, whatever you want to call it. And if we can't agree on the settled law, the settled history of how we got here and the effects of it, how are we going to move forward? Right. Um, well, I don't, I don't think we can. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I've been doing my little part and, and really wrote this last book as, as a way of saying, yeah, we have to be more honest and, and particularly for people who, you know, share my background, you know, kind of white Christian 
particularly those from the South, uh, but not only those from the South, but uh, being more honest with ourselves about you know our history and how we got to where we are, why there is the conflicts there are um, in the country today and the fault lines there are. You know, but you know, one of the ways that um, I and I agree with you, we are in this moment of pushback, backlash that is all so evident um, all around us. Um, but I, I do think we we are there because there has been uh, it's a reaction, right? And it's a reaction to a, a new movement of us coming to terms with this history. Um, you know, most I, I visited Mississippi and Minnesota and Oklahoma um, have kind of sec- three sections of the book in each of those states to look at what's happening on the ground. And in each of those cases, only in the last 20 years, um, really has there been efforts at facing some of the worst efforts of racial violence um, in, the, in the country. And, and, and it has been, in many ways, a reaction to that work, that really good work of trying to c- come to grips with this history and come to a more honest history that can serve as a better foundation for us to move together move forward together. Um, but, you know, it's threatening. Um, and part of the reason why it's threatening to tell a different story is because I, it, I think it, it really comes down to the fact that the current social arrangements that we have and the socioeconomic hierarchies that we have become less justifiable um, when you tell a more honest story. Again, it, it's not about meritocracy or, you know, well, my parents just worked harder than yours and that's why we have more money. Um, I mean, those kinds of stories, I think, you know, are ones we like to tell, but um, it's clearly not what the historical, you know, record testifies to. I'm, I'm glad you referenced um, the three sections of the book because that was leading into my next question. So you perfectly read my mind and and my notes are separated in that way. So again, kudos. You know, I think this was my interpretation and reading, right? Mississippi is an easy scapegoat for what, someone that grew up in New York all their life would think about the South, right? Like Mississippi is a Northeasterners sort of catch-all for all that is wrong, quote unquote, with the United States, right? Everybody seen Mississippi burning. They know the Emmett Till story. You know, those things are, and to me, it's reductive and lazy. And because one, a lot of black people in Mississippi, <laughs> right? So to the extent that Mississippi looks the way it looks from a representative perspective, it is on purpose, <laughs> right? Black people have been disenfranchised in Mississippi for a long time. And I would make the argument in Jackson, for example, a majority, now majority black city, still disenfranchised, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Still under-resourced, right? The water crisis in, Miss, in in Jackson that is partially caused by the white power structure that underfunds Jackson, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. You, you take the book to Minnesota, the place of George Floyd's murder. Minnesota, people would consider, oh, it's not the South, but you tell a story very early on where they're like, we might not be the South, but we're acting very much like the South. <laughs> and then we go to Oklahoma, you know, a place famously now many people know about the, the Tulsa race massacre. But yet, I think two weeks ago, Oklahoma's attorney general passed or is or pushing to pass incredibly restrictive laws as it comes to teaching the history of Oklahoma yeah. and, and this nation. So as I was reading the book, yes, it's history, but it's happening now in these places and all around the country. So mm-hmm. I, I want to get your thoughts and perspective on why you particularly landed on choosing those three epicenters mm. to tell the story. Yeah, well, uh, I'll start with Mississippi. Um, so I grew up in Jackson. There's my hometown and my home state. So one of the things that struck me, though, is uh, there was a, uh, or my own story that parallels the story of a guy named Jerome Little. He's one of the first elected African-Americans um, in, in the Delta, in the Mississippi Delta, essentially after uh, African-Americans were re-enfranchised to vote um, after the Voting Rights Act and, and huge efforts to register um, African-Americans to vote in the Delta. And so he's one of the first round of African-Americans elected. And um, he grew up in, in the county uh, where Emmett Till was killed. And 
he did not learn about Emmett Till until he was an adult and he was stationed in the army in France. And there were some of his colleagues who were talking about it. And he was like, wait, what? That happened right down the road for me. I, and I never got this history. And so he returned and ended up getting elected county commissioner um, later in life. And he just made it his mission to say, we are going to tell the truth about the story uh, there. And it's similar to me. I mean, I grew up in Jackson Public Schools. You had said, who's Megar Evers? Who is uh, Emmett Till? I wouldn't have been able to tell you. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer? Yeah, no, definitely not Fannie Lou Hamer, right? No, <laughs> none of these names uh, were anywhere on my radar, right? After graduate, I graduated top of my class in, in high school, right? And really, um, just nowhere in the history books, right? That I was that I was given or, or, or um, required to learn what the, you know what the state of Mississippi thought I needed to know as I entered into adulthood. It was not on the radar. Uh, so I, part of it was kind of wanting to tell that story and, and tell the story, I think, of, again, people just in the last 20 years or so that you know, even if you've gone recently as 2000, there were like no markers in Tallahatchie, even though people around the world know uh, the story of him until in the county that most of the events happened, there were no markers at all uh, there. And there was a group that got together and it was an interracial group of both, many of them descendants of enslaved people on the one hand and descendants of enslavers on the other. And uh, got in the room and stuck it out for years um, in order to kind of get this uh, effort underway. And, um, uh, and you know, and it's paid huge dividends. It just last month, President Biden really as a result of their efforts on the ground, but now has uh, announced the new uh, national monument, the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument that'll be under the auspices of the National Park Service um, that's just been established. Um, and then, you know, Minnesota, um, just real quickly, uh, I wanted to go there because exactly what you said, you know, I think it's easy to think about these problems being sequestered to the South. These are Southern ex-Confederate state problems. The rest of the country's fine. And so I want to go about as far north as you could go. Um, wasn't that far from Canada up in Duluth and tell a story of, you know, what's something that sounds like it's right out of the pages of Mississippi. There was this lynching of three African-American men uh, in 1920 who were in town for a single day. Uh, they were working um, on a, a itinerant circus, and they were accused by a white woman of sexually assaulting her falsely and thrown in jail and hauled out of jail by a huge mob. It was 10,000 people in this far north, very white, um, uh, overwhelmingly white town. Uh, and that was about a tenth of the population of the town that turned out to this lynching here and then subsequently, you know, tried to forget about it um, there. And again, some efforts of finally telling the truth that began in the 1990s and resulted in a, a, a monument, beautiful monument to plaza to these, to these men in 2003. And then Oklahoma, as you mentioned, um, I think we, we know the story of uh, now, uh, of the 100th anniversary that was in 2021, of the Tulsa race massacre, um, uh, but kind of went and interviewed people telling that story as well. And each of these cases tried to link it up to a history of the indigenous people in that place and to see the continuities between the way indigenous people were killed, displaced, and the way that African-American people were enslaved uh, uh, and disenfranchised. It's a, it's a really um, critical read and I'm thankful that you did it. I want, I want to get you out on this before we go to the drop, which is the, the final section of the show. We're only going to do one of the two sections of the final sections of the show today, but you know, you're promoting the book, you're you're out doing media, my show included. And I know this is gonna be the best one, but um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do you do you feel as you're as you're going out there and you're telling the story that there is a receptive audience that really wants to wrestle with the uncomfortable nature of this? You know, because some people just yeah. they don't want to deal. They prefer the right the happy ending story. Maybe it's just me. I prefer the grimy story because it's more real. But, you know, what are you seeing and feeling as you promote the book? And I'll throw in another piece of that. You know, the the national media, for what they're worth, we're also ramping up into another big election year, right? right? And so the the hounds are out on the conservative side, ghouls like Ron DeSantis and 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 Really, all of them are terrible. So I'm not going to just say him. They all suck. Um, that's another part of this backdrop as you're promoting the book. So as you, I threw a lot out there, but yeah. what are you seeing out there as you, as you're 
as you're out here talking about these topics? Yeah, uh, well, I, I see a lot of apprehension and particularly in white Christian circles that have just been ripped apart, I think, by particularly the MAGA movement with it's just kind of overtly bigoted, anti-immigrant, anti-Black kind of sentiments uh, that are just shot through with uh, with that. Um, but I have also seen um, a lot of receptivity. Um, it's been, I, I think, surprising to me that um, I've been asked over the last three years and into into the congregations of over 100 predominantly white Christian spaces who are actually wanting to have this conversation. Um, you know, just uh, earlier this week, I was in uh, I was in Minnesota, I was in Minneapolis at a predominantly white Baptist church uh, in uh, in Minneapolis uh, last weekend. I was in Harrisburg at Messiah uh, University, predominantly white Christian University, and then spoke that night at a AME Zion, uh, primarily African American church. But but in that primarily African American church, uh, there were as many white people as non white people uh, who came to have the conversation, which I was. Uh, both surprised and gratified by. So, um, and next week I'll be in Mississippi all week where I'm speaking at, you know, the kind of traditional bookstore kind of formats, but I'm also speaking at the University of Mississippi Law School and two different churches, one in Jackson, one in Hattiesburg, down in the southern part of the state. So, you know, uh, that's not a bastion of liberalism uh, uh, by any stretch. Um, And yet, you know, there's people who are really wanting uh, to have these conversations. So I, and I, I do think that's where it's going, you know, if we kind of just stay at the headlines and the national buzz or, or the ugliness on social media, you know, I think it's, it's easy to kind of lose perspective, but I do think that there, the key is, and, you know, I don't know, we'll, we'll have to live into this. Um, but, you know, there was a line that Biden used one time, I believe it's actually in a speech he gave around the Tulsa race massacre, um, but he, he that or state of the union, but he basically used this line where he said, you know, what we need is enough of us to bring the rest of us along, um, enough of us committed to telling the truth, enough of us committed to repairing the damage to bring the rest of us along. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we're, despite the ugliness, and, and I do think this, this next season uh, through 2024 is going to be a tough one, um, you know, and, and perhaps um, a violent one. Um, and, and it's going to take all of us kind of doing our part. Um, but I am hopeful that I am seeing work on the ground in local communities. And I think that's, in fact, where it's going to have to change. Absolutely. All, all politics is local and we have to we have to find each other no matter where we are, whether we're in, in Brooklyn or we're in D.C. or we're in Jackson, Mississippi or we're in other parts of the world. Those of us who who care deeply about, you know, making a better future have to find each other and, and being honest about where we've been. Is a, is a big part of that. So I, I commend you and thank you for the work you've done and will continue to do. So before we officially wrap this, I want to get to the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything with our readers that, listeners rather, that we think um, they should be aware of. It doesn't have to be super heavy, but it can be. Everything goes on the drop. So my drop is a movie that I love this movie. It's called um, Arrival. Amy Adams, and it came out a while ago, so it's not like it's a, a thing. I don't think it's a spoiler, but it, it's sort of the uh, story of what happens when human beings encounter extraterrestrial life. And it's a little deeper than that, but I, I love this story. It's a story of communication. It's a story of love through the ages. And um, I watched a little bit of it last night and we'll finish it up again today. Um, but it's one of my, one of those movies that when it comes on, I always watch. So my drop is the movie Arrival and it's on Netflix now. So it's easy, easy access for those of us who have Netflix accounts. The floor is yours, my friend. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in with um, uh, something that uh, actually my family's reading together um, with my son, uh, who is, uh, 13 and uh, my wife's Jewish and the uh, you know there is the kind of coming of age bar mitzvah um, kind of tradition in her absolutely side of the family and so we are um, uh, we're not doing a formal bar mitzvah but we are doing some readings this year and I'm going to throw one out that's an oldie um, but is I think an absolutely transformative book for me um, uh, and it's it's Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, and the, particularly for any of, you, any of your listeners who um, are kind of in that white Christian world, this is a very different version of Jesus than you get in white church. Um, uh, and it, it is uh, one also that um, a mentor for Martin Luther King Jr. 
Uh, it's a book that King actually carried around often with him uh, when, even though he had read it, even though he knew Thurman well, he would carry this book with him uh, in his briefcase um, as as he went to to marches uh, and the like. So it's a it's it written in the forties. Um, so it, it's it's a just prescient, really prophetic uh, book. So I'll, I'll leave it out with that. Oh, that's awesome! I, another, another book. I'm going to go looking for. These, I feel like these drops are for the listeners, but I'm I'm often the person who benefits. I think the most because I always find something else to to check out, either to to read or listen to or or to watch. Um, so that's a great drop. Um, Robert, I want to really thank you again for for joining me on the deep dive, for being on the show, for doing this work, for traveling as much as you as you do and, and kind of connecting with those on the ground who, like I said, want to offer and create and co-create something different. So well done. And again, thank you for joining me on the deep dive. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.